11 through 14. I, I would mention this and did mention it in the Sunday school, but so many of you who may have had a part in his life uh, may have not heard it, and that is that I uh, got a call yesterday from uh, Lori Johnson, and she was telling us that uh, Evan Johnson had been at camp uh, during the week, uh, a youth camp, and he had surrendered to the ministry to call to preach. And so she wanted to share that with the church because the teachers and people in the ministry here had had such an impact on Evan's life. And she wanted you to know it, that any contribution you made to his uh, knowing the Lord better and knowing God's Word, she wants you to know that she appreciated uh, your investment of time and energy and effort in his life. And uh, this young man now called a ministry, and he doesn't know whether it's to be a missionary evangelist or a pastor, but he's willing to go in any other direction. And I wish you'd pray for Evan Johnson, if you would. And I knew Evan had been speaking in his youth group and had been doing that several times. I'd heard reports about that, and I understand doing a good job, and his pastor had been letting him preach and speak in some of the groups. And uh, so I believe God's taking him to another level. And uh, so you pray for Evan Johnson now as uh, one of the young people here of our own church. And then, too, uh, I think it's Elizabeth Monday who has taken a mission trip, and the Lord had been working in Elizabeth's heart, so I don't know what the Lord's going to do with her, but she's taken a mission trip with her teen group there in the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville. So you might be praying for, for Elizabeth that the Lord would use this in her life and give direction to her about that. So it's always a delight to hear of our young people who are going on with the Lord and doing something that's uh, of eternal consequence. And... Uh, Hope that you'll pray for them as you remind you of them. Here in chapter 6 of Romans, chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul writes, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. I remind you again, the great two truths that we have covered thus far in the book of Romans is one, that all have sinned in Adam, and therefore, if you were to be born in this world, uh, as the Burton's baby will be born on July the 2nd, this baby could come into this world and never commit a sin. And if that baby lived a perfect life and never sinned one time, it still would not be right with God. Because that baby, as with all of us, sinned in Adam. That's what Romans 5.12 is saying. So that's the first important truth we've come to. Now with others, and I don't make them any less important, but these are two crucial ones that seem to be so often misunderstood. And the second one comes in Romans chapter 6, and that is that when Christ died on the cross, He not only took care of your penalty for sin, but He also took care of providing you with a power to say no to sin, something you'd never had before. Before, you, as it were, were unable not to sin. You know, when you're born into this world, you're born a sinner and you live a sinner's lifestyle, you, you are unable in yourself to say no to sin. And consequently, you need help. So if God, in fact, in Christ, had just died for your sin and paid your sin penalty, you'd still have to wrestle with sin every day. So what he did, he not only paid your sin death, but he also provided you with a power to be able to say no to sin. And so Romans chapter 6 says that. Well, what we come to in chapter 
chapter 6 now in verse 11, and by the way, don't get scared, we'll only do one verse. Verse 11 is the only place we'll park today. That is this verse of Scripture then ought to give encouragement to you to how to accommodate yourself of that or how to appropriate yourself of that which He's provided. If He's provided something, then how do I utilize it? What do I do about it? And Romans chapter 6 verse 11 gives us that. But start with, as this being Father's Day, I'm reminded that whenever a son in a what we would call a, a son that was a member of an Orthodox Jewish family became a Christian, someone who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, it was an interesting thing that the father would say and make this declaration to the family and to all the friends of that family. He would say, quote, this my son is dead. In fact, he declares that to everybody who'd listen, his family, his friends, his neighbors, the postman, uh, the grocery store owner, anybody who would listen, he'd tell. The father turns the son out of the house, never to speak of him and never to speak to him again. And the fact is, if a friend asked and said, hey, I haven't seen your son lately, uh, how's he doing? A man would say, my son is dead. Now, that's from an Orthodox Jewish family. That actually happens in America, and that's how they're treated. One of the family members trusts Christ as Savior. A son does. He is literally put out of the life of the family. He is counted as if he were dead. Now, the son's not actually dead, but the fact is the father counts him dead and considers him dead. He's no longer a reality in that family's life. That's a good but not perfect illustration about what Romans chapter 6 and verse 11 is going to be saying to us. It's not exact because there's some faults and failures in that illustration that are not in the illustration of the scriptures. Let me point them out to you. Let's begin with the first word. In verse 11 of chapter 6, the word is likewise. And boy, if ever there was a, a, an important word in the study of the scriptures, it is the word likewise. Paul's argument of truth that he's presenting here in this verse, uh, and the truth that he's proclaiming to you and me and has recorded here under inspiration, literally hinges on this word likewise. To us, in a theological way, here's what it means. It means in a practical sense, Paul is saying, you have known and understood and fully believed all that I've said to you over these last ten verses, or what I'll tell you right now, you will make no sense. If you haven't believed those things and embraced those things that I've said and understood those things, then what I'm about to say right now won't make any sense to you at all. But likewise, if you understand those things, this is going to be something of a real blessing and a real help to you. So that's the way he uses likewise in this verse. Then notice the second word in verse 11 is the word reckon. I told you early on when we started chapter 6, there were three words in this chapter that would help you understand your relationship to the Lord in regard to your sanctification. The first one was the word no. It was used several times. The word no is used in verse number 3, and a part or some phase of knowing is used in verse 6 and verse 9. So knowing something. And, and in the case here, Paul expected these people to know something. He was talking to them in a way that he already expected them to understand some things. But that's not the only word. The second word is this word in verse 11. It's the word reckon. We'll talk about that in detail in a moment. But the other word is the word yield. That word is found in verse 13, 16, and 19. So here's the three words, something you need to know, and then once you know something, you need to reckon it, and then the third thing you need to do is yield to it. So those are the three truths that will help you understand your responsibility to the Lord in regard to your sanctification. Now, with that understood, when you come to this word reckon in verse number 11, it should be noted that this word is a, an exhortation to be something that you're to do, something you're to act upon based upon what Paul has already taught and he's already said. Let me explain that a little further this way. Here we've come five and a half chapters into Romans, as it were, and we've covered 148 verses already. 
And in this first section, this is the first time in the 148 verses that the Apostle Paul has directly, clearly commanded you to do something. This is the first time. That means he's preached five and a half chapters and he's not asked you to do a single thing. Just, just to sit and listen to what I've got to say. And so for five and a half chapters, we've been sitting, reading, and listening, and understanding what he's laying out as a foundational argument. And now, he says, it's time to act upon all that. It's, it's important to read it. It's important to know it. But now you've got to do something about it. And so when we come to chapter number 6 and verse number 11, is the first word, and it's this word. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to reckon. I want you to reckon. And that starts, by the way, once he gives you this order to do something, it's just almost like he opens up a window or a floodgate. Now there'll be many commands. Now there'll be many directives of what he wants you to do. But this one is an important one, and it comes in a unique place. And in fact, as I was reading one author, I was impressed by what he, he said, and I, I wrote it down. I want to share it with you. I agree with what he says. This author wrote, he said, Most modern Americans are activists. They want to cut out all the preliminary stuff and get right down to the chase. The author went on to ask, what's wrong with this? He said, I suggest that because of our characteristic North American impatience with matters of basic substance or with anything that requires hard and prolonged work, we have jumped ahead too quickly to the exhortation part of Christianity and have not taken sufficient time to understand and appropriate the fundamental teachings that affect our whole life. He says, I believe the Apostle Paul holds off any exhortation of what believers were to do until they understand what God has done. And when they fully appreciate that, getting them to do will be a simple task. I agree with him. I agree with you. I think sometimes we try to get people to do something uh, uh, based on, you know, the, the challenge of Christianity, the effort of Christianity. And we leave off all this other great teaching, as in Paul's case here for five and a half chapters, he's not asking you to do anything. He just said, I want you to understand this wonderful truth about justification by faith. And, and I want you to understand all the details about what Christ's death on the cross has done and all the wonderful things it's provided for you. So you just sit. Listen, let me tell you this. And we sit. And we sit. And we are North American impatient people, as he calls us. And we want to get up and do something. Let's go do something. And he keeps saying, well, just sit. Just make sure you get this truth. Because if you get this truth, it won't be any problem to get you to do something then once you got it. Maybe that's why so many American... Americans sit and don't do much for the Lord. Maybe that's why we, we, you know, we, we have no desire to see people saved. Maybe, maybe we just don't have all the understanding of what all this means. See? I mean, put it to yourself. What did you do this week that will count one second after you die? What did you do this week that will matter one second after your heart stops beating? What will matter when once your grave, the sod on your grave has already begun to grow back? How much did you do this week that's going to count after the sod's already growing back on your grave? You see, that's what Paul is saying. I don't want this to be a flash in the pan kind of Christianity. I want it to be something with substance and something with a foundation under it. And I want you to understand it. And if you understand what Christ has done for you, it'll be no problem to get you to do for Christ what you ought to do for him. But if you don't understand it, it'll just be old hat and nonchalant, non-important, and let's just go on to the next thing. So sometimes busyness covers up barrenness 
of the reality and an understanding of real truth. And that's why I believe, and I agree with the author, I believe that's why Paul the Apostle hadn't said a word about you doing anything or me doing anything up to this point. But now, with all these 148 verses under our belt, he's going to say, now there's some things you need to do. And I say to you, it's not to excuse us from doing what we know to do. It's just to say, to let's make sure we understand what it is we're supposed to be doing because based on what Christ has done for us, that's foundational to everything in the Christian life. Did you realize that? When Christ died on the cross, everything that He did and provided and made possible through His death is foundational to everything else you have in the Christianity. Everything. So if we don't understand what that's all about and what that provided and what that did, I said last week there are two deaths you need to understand. You need to understand the death of Jesus Christ and what it accommodated, what it appropriated, what it accomplished. You also need to understand that when Christ died on the cross, if you know Christ, you died with Him. You need to understand you're dead. You're not alive to this world. You're dead in Christ. And the things of this world ought to grow strangely dim in the light of His presence, in the presence of His Word, in the presence of the fellowship with His people, in the presence of reading His Scriptures and understanding His will for my life. Look again now at the word reckon. And this word reckon is the Greek word, and it's used in the, the Greek word that's used to match up or translate by our word reckon is a, a word that um, when I did my usual word search, this one came up that it was used in so many varied ways. One of them was, and probably the most prolific way that it's used, it was used in, in the history of the early words, was the word that was used in bookkeeping. It was a word that had to do, in fact, we carried one part of that word, that Greek word, over to our English language, and we used the word log. Some people keep a log. You know, if you do bookkeeping, you have a log of credits and debits, and, and that's what it is, log. Well, the word log is a carryover from the Greek word. But also that word is logistics. The military uses this word when they're trying to move troops from one location to another, when they're moving supplies. They talk about what's the logistics of this thing. That word logistics comes over. It's a carryover from the Greek word that's used here in this context. The fact of the matter is the Greek word also was used in philosophy. It was in the history of the early Greeks. They used the word that is used for the word reckon here. They used it in philosophy, and it was carried over to our English language in the word logic, or even in the word logical. When we say, oh, that's logical. That's, that's logical. It's logic. The fact of the matter is, the part of these usages that are in common with each other, the word log, logistics, logical, logic, the thing that's in common with all of these is the very backbone of the word, and that is this. The Greek word carries with it the idea that this world deals with something that's actual, something that's real, and something that's not pretending or wishful thinking. The Greek word here conveys the idea that it is an acknowledgement or an acting upon something that is already absolutely, unequivocally true. What that means is Paul uses this word in a variety of ways, but the one way that it's consistent with what he did, and he proves this, over in Romans chapter 6, or excuse me, 4. Over in Romans chapter 4, I went back and counted. Paul used this Greek word 11 times in the context of Romans chapter 4. This uh, word in chapter 4 was where Paul explained to us the two sides of justification, if you remember. He said there was the side of justification where Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was punished for our sins. He paid our sin debt. What it said was, was reckoned to him our sins, so he paid for them was punished for them, etc. But it said also in Romans chapter 4, the word reckoned, same Greek word used here, was that he reckoned to us his righteousness. So our sins were reckoned to him, and his righteousness was reckoned to us. 
And that same Greek word is the one Paul used. And by the way, I remind you, the Greek word means that it is something that is absolutely, unequivocally true. It is the acknowledgement that something true. So here in the context, these were not imaginary transactions that God brought about. These were things that were reality. So in God's mind, this happened. He actually reckoned to His Son our sin. And He actually reckoned to us our righteousness or the righteousness that once belonged to Christ. And it is now ours. That's how important that Greek word is. Now, coming back to Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, let me read the rest of the verse. Likewise, based on everything I've taught you for the ten verses, and you've understood and you've fully grasped them, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's he asking us to do? Two things. And that's where we'll spend the bulk of the message. First, he's asking us to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin. He's saying, reckon yourselves dead unto sin. You understood everything I've taught for these ten verses, in fact, for five and a half chapters. Now, here's what I want you to do. To get something out of all this, I want you to reckon. I want you to count. I want you to consider. I want you to log down in your heart the fact of the matter that you are dead to sin. And I want you to keep logging that. I want you to keep recording that. I want you to keep noting that. And I want you to understand that it is something that is not a mind game. It's not something you keep repeating yourself. I'm dead to sin. 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 You don't just have to keep that all day long and say, "Well, I'm dead to sin." You know, I got that. I'm dead to sin. It's not a mind game. It's not some kind of gibberish kind things that you sort of get yourself psyched up and you walk into. It's not that at all. You know what it is? It's the same thing you did when you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. You accept Him at His Word. He said it, Christ died for you, He freed you from sin, and He said because you died with Christ, you are dead to sin. Now let me ask you a simple question. Do you believe God or not? If you believe God, then you have to walk by faith. You have to say, I'm dead to sin. Christ died for me on the cross. He paid my sin debt. And then at the same time, He made a provision for me to pay, have power to say no to sin. I am freed. From the power of sin. And this verse of scripture says, and Paul says, now what I want you to do is I want you to reckon that. I want you to count that as true. God said it. Christ did it. Now I want you to appropriate it. How do I do that? I want you to reckon it. Just consider it so. To act and live as if it is a reality. Somebody put it this way. We are to conclude to be true in us what God has declared to be true about us. You get it? We are to conclude, or we are to reckon, we are to count that it is true what's in us, what God has declared to be true about us. By the way, reckoning in the Bible sense is not acting as if something were so, it is acting as if something is so, because it is so. It's saying it happened. Christ died on the cross. He died for our sins, paid the sin debt, and paid for the penalty of sin. And at the same time, He made a provision for us to be able to say, No, what this all boils down is to the message title, Acting on the Fact. Acting on the Fact. It amazes me that we have a simple way and a, and a simple time of acting on the fact when somebody says, Do you believe that Christ died for you on the cross? Yeah. you believe you're a sinner? Yes. And right now you want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Yeah, I want to do that. And they get saved. Then we come back and say, Okay, do you understand Christ died for you on the cross? Yes. Do you understand when Christ died for you on the cross, paid your sin debt, and you paid, paid the penalty for your sin, you've accepted it? Yes. Do you understand at the same time He also provided for you the power to say no to sin so that right now you can be dead to sin and in fact are. You're declared dead to sin. Do you understand that? No. 
Why do we get hung up there? Why can't we embrace and take and believe the same truth about the same death of the same Christ on the same cross and say both of these are? Because the Bible says they are. God declares them to be so. He didn't say you're to die daily. He said you're dead back there when Christ died on the cross. Now you need to actuate and appropriate it every day, that's for sure. But you died at the cross. And that's why if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Why? Because the old one died when Christ died on the cross. And consequently, we somehow have a very hard time acting on this. And yet, what's amazing to me, look at it for yourself. Look at chapter 6 and look at these verses and see the common thread. Romans 6, verse number 2. God forbid, how shall we that are, what's the word? Dead to sin live any longer. That are dead to sin. Do you see that? Does it say you might be someday or you should be every day? You should die daily to sin? It didn't say that. It said that you that are dead to sin. That's a done deal. Look at number. Look at verse number 3. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into who? Into what? His death. Look at verse number 4. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into what? Death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Verse 6. Knowing this. Knowing this. Not guessing about it. Not hoping about it. But knowing this. That our old man is crucified with Him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. There's one common thread running through the whole thing. You're a dead person if you know Christ. You died to the sin of this world. You died to all these things that are after your attention to pull you in. And what Paul the Apostle is saying now, now just count it so. Just reckon it to be so. Don't just say, well, it ought to be. It is. You died to sin when you died with Christ on the cross. And our problem is we know ourselves. And because we know ourselves, we say, how can that be? How can, I have, how can I have this power to say no to sin when I know my heart and I sin so frequently? That doesn't change the fact that Christ made a provision. You don't have to. What you need to accept the fact is this. If you sin, you sin by choice. And you see what we do? We deny the others so we don't have to face the reality that it's our fault. Now, we can spit all over the place we want to and say all the things we want to about people who try to get out from it blaming themselves. But when it comes down to this, Baptist folks are just like the rest. We try to get it off on somebody else. And so what we have trouble here is, it is acknowledging that I sin today if I sinned. I sin because I choose to. I sin because I wanted to. The devil never makes you do it. Christ would certainly never make you sin. So you only have one option here. I sin because I wish to. I say the wrong things, I do the wrong things, I act the wrong way because I want to. But let's quit playing around the merry-go-round. Let's be honest with ourselves. The provision has been made. We have been dead with Christ at the cross. Salvation is secure. And the power to say no to sin is secure. But the fact that we don't, we protect our own egos. And say, hey, I don't blame me. I'm a measly good old guy. I mean, he tries not to do this. and well, Let's just be honest. We do what we do because we wish to. We sin because we delight in it. And everybody enjoys the pleasures of sin for a season. Not just lost people. Saved people get back into it. You have a taste. You have taste buds. If you touch the old life, don't kid yourself. You could go back in a heartbeat. 
and there have been people who have. There have been people who taste and have tasted liquor and were, were people who got involved in drinking early on and when they got saved it was no piece of cake to walk by a tavern and not have a sense of desire for thirst to be quenched by a cold beer. There are people who shot up drugs and who enjoyed that high that they experienced for that momentary experience and momentary elation and ecstasy and all that business for just a moment. And to this day, there's a certain smell, they say, that when they smell that smell, they remember. And for just a twinge of a memory of a conscience, they think about the high that they enjoyed for those days. Don't kid yourself. The old flesh is never eradicated and the old sinful nature is never completely dead to the, to the reality of it being just a, a heartbeat away, just a step behind you to call you back to the old way of living. But don't let that or anything else like that black mark the fact that the Bible declares that you are dead to sin. And Paul is saying here in this context, I'm not asking you to do something that's not already happened. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not telling you here to pretend that you're dead to sin. Paul says in verse number 11, I'm telling you based on the 10 verses ahead and the five and a half chapters before that you reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. But by the way, that's only half the story. The other half is this. He not only says that he wants us to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but the other half is this. He wants you to be alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Being dead is only half of the good news. The other half of the good news is that we're alive in Jesus Christ. And just as everything that pertained to his death took care of sin, the things concerning his life pertain to the victory that's ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And in his living through us, we have the same victories. And everybody in this room ought to grasp them just as easily as they grasp the belief that salvation is by grace. You see, the one death of Christ, that is the one aspect of his death, removes the penalty. The other provides the power to live the Christian life successfully. I read this week, and uh, I'm, I'm taking it as truth. I realize everything I read is not true, but I believe this to be true. But uh, if you prove me wrong, I accept that. But I read it in a, in a book that uh, all flowers, all flowers open toward the sun. All flowers open toward the sun. There is only one flower that will follow the sun all day long. Did anybody guess? The sunflower. You'd think that by its name, the sunflower. But the sunflower starts to watch it and follows it all day long. That's why when you go to a sunflower field, when we were in Ohio, my wife and I, we lived out in the country further than we do now. And it was a fact that there was a sun field, a sunflower field. I mean, this guy must have had 50 acres of sunflowers. You could go home out in the morning and the sunflowers were all headed that way. We'd come home in the evening. Those crazy things flopped the other way. By the way, that's why they lose their heads. You know, but the farmer would say, no, that makes them dried so they're easy to pluck the seed out of the sunflower seeds. The fact of the matter is, I know now, according to this book, it's because they follow the sun back and forth, back and forth. Their concept and their own inborn reality is they need the sun to survive. It's just a shame that we believers don't understand the same thing when it comes to the issue of our sin. Knowing that the source, the power for my being able to say no to sin is in my relationship to Jesus Christ and what he has done for me on the cross of Calvary. 
And then to be able to understand that, that I have the power. I have been freed from sin through what Christ did for me. And I understand there are folks who, who would say to me and say, you know, I, I, I agree with you because the closer I am to the Lord, the less interest I have in the things of this world and the temptations of this world and all the pleasures of this world lose their joy. But it's in bowled up in, it's all twined in the relationship I have with Christ. Some of you who read your word, God's word every day, you have a sense of that. And you sense the days when you're stronger and the days when you're weaker in regard to the temptations of this world. It's bound up in your relationship with Him. As you follow the Son and you renew your strength in Him through it, it's easier to say no to those things. Now, with that, all that said, let me close the message briefly with this kind of thing. The important issue here, and especially on a Father's Day, is the question of your relationship to Jesus Christ. All of what I've said before is all bound up with the idea that you know Christ as Savior. But the fact of the matter is, you have to face this question. Has there ever been a time in my life when I came to understand or acknowledge that under God's description of me, I am a sinner? I'm alienated from God. God and I don't have a relationship the way I want or He wants. And when I come to face that reality, then I see myself as sinful and lost as He does. And acknowledging that, I call out to Him in mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Christ's sake. Now, let me stop there for just a moment and say this. That's imperative that you do that in order to be right with God. There may be people in this room who've been, quote, members of churches, baptized in the whole ten yards, but who have never come to realize that they were sinners in need of a relationship with God through their, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore they've made no effort, as it would call effort, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. I was reminded this week of people who can sit under Bible teaching and preaching, it seems, forever, and simply stumble over the simple fact that you must be born again if you're going to go to heaven. You must be born again. You must be born again. And being born again is what this whole thing rests upon. Christ dying on the cross makes it possible for me to be a new creature, to have a new birth, to have a new relationship with God, and have a new relationship with sin. A relationship with sin that I can say no to. That I've not got my arms bent over my back and forced into anything my will says I don't want to participate in. I can say no to it, but only one reason, because I've been born again. The Holy Spirit of God indwells me and gives me the power to say no when I need to say no. And so the question on the table for the first group is this. If you're here in this service and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, do you understand if you die where you sit this morning as die you could, you end up in hell forever? I don't care whether you're a member of the New Life Baptist Church or not, that will not count on the docket of heaven about getting you into heaven. What counts is what did you do with my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die for you? So that's the question on the table. But if that is not what you need to address this morning, then I come to believers and ask you, are you appropriating Romans chapter 6 and verse number 11? If you're a believer, you've died with Christ on the cross, you've trusted him as your Savior, I ask you the simple question, are you reckoning yourselves also indeed dead to sin and alive to Christ? Or are you just submitting yourself to sin because you think that's the only way to go? I'm saying my friend Paul the Apostle didn't say this to hear his head roar. He said, I have given you the basis scripturally, theologically, so you can say no to sin 
Now the issue is, are you going to count that as true, as being from God? Or are you just going to keep on being a slave to sin? That's the equivalent of somebody even this day in America, some black person being in slavery to some master somewhere because they have not heard that there's been an emancipation signing. Christ already signed the emancipation papers for us concerning sin. We are freed not to sin. But there are Christians who are bound in sin and slaves to sin. And Paul gets even more particular and more personal as we continue this chapter to prove that very point. I say this to you one more time. We have reckoned ourselves dead to sin when we respond to temptation as a dead man would. That's being dead to sin. Do you respond to sin as a dead man would? Pay no attention to it? Abstain from it? Turn away from it? Then you're probably not dead to sin if you don't. Because that's what being dead to sin is. We started the message with a story concerning the Orthodox home, the Jewish home, where the father of a son who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he was kicked out, he was counted as dead. Let me say it on the other side to a Gentile family. If you have a son or a father that has never believed on Jesus Christ as Savior, they're dead in sin. They're dead in sin. They need to be and need to be introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to hear the gospel, the good news of grace, and need to be gloriously saved. I read this week a, an account in a historical book concerning a Latin American revolution that took place obviously many years ago. It told the story of a U.S. citizen who had been captured and was sentenced to be killed by firing squad. It also went on to tell an interesting facet of the story. It went like this. An American officer ran out into front of the firing squad and draped a large American flag over the victim and then turned and stood in front of the victim, in front of the flag, and made this statement, quote, If you shoot this man, you will fire through the American flag, and you will incur the wrath of a whole nation. End of quote. The incident was recorded that the revolutionary who had his men's rifles aimed at the man's body immediately gave the order to drop their weapons and release the prisoner at once. I read that and I didn't think about war and I didn't think about that war and I really didn't think about that officer that was so brave to go do that. What I thought about that was we as believers have been draped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and sin cannot get to us unless we permit it. That's what I thought. Christ died for me. Christ, as he died on the cross, in essence, I died with him. Just as certainly I died with Christ on the cross as surely as I sinned in Adam. The fact of the matter is, His grace is provided for me to be saved and know Christ as Savior and live eternal, successful, victorious Christian life. And He paid it all. I don't earn any of it. I thought this week, as I said at my desk, several things, and I'm sure they come from other sources over the years, but I thought of these things. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, changes everything. I thought, first of all, we become right with God. We're reconciled to God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought we become new creatures. Our interests change. Our insights to the Bible, understanding of it, become clearer, focused, and we understand what God is saying. A third thing came to mind. We become free from the bondage of sin, those sins that will kill you. We're free to say no to liquor and drugs and sex and all those things that in the context of which the devil would invite us can absolutely ruin and wreck our lives. But when we come to know Christ as Savior, we can say no to those things. There was a fourth thing that came to mind. We become committed to a higher cause, a cause that is higher than anything this world has to offer. And then fifthly, I thought we become dissatisfied with the world 
and even with all of what it calls pleasures, they just aren't important to us anymore. Everything changes when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The issue on the table is twofold. One, have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Is there been this change that He ordained in your life? And number two, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, have you taken Him fully or only partially? Is He your Savior, but not the provider of the power to say no to sin? Did you take Him as Savior and say, Oh, yeah, He's my Savior and my Lord, but yeah, I do. I, you know, I'm still in bondage to sin. You know, Why didn't you take Him in His totality, what He provided? Why just take half of what He is? Why not take all of it? This morning, I hope you will. And I hope you do it here at the New Life Baptist Church. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the great truth of Romans chapter 6 and verse number 11. I pray this morning that You will help every one of us here who know You as Savior to take to heart the command that Paul the Apostle under inspiration has given us. And that is that indeed we reckon ourselves dead to sin. And on top of that, that we reckon ourselves alive unto God. Not dead Christians, but alive Christians. We're dead only to sin. We're alive to God. Listening for His Word and listening to what He has to say to us and listening for His direction and looking for His blessing. I pray this morning that you'll help every member of the New Life Baptist Church to take an inventory of heart and mind and soul and help every single one of us to be dead indeed to sin, to reckon it so, and then to reckon that we're alive unto God. Father, there's victory in this, but it's so often so hard to get us to embrace by faith the simplest of great truths. I pray you'll help us to do so this morning as your people. I do now pray for those who are here who never trusted Christ. May have been people who've been in church all their life, but they've never really come to grips and to, to grasp the fact that they're born sinners. And, and even though they're religious, they don't seem to get to hold of the fact before now that they're lost, alienated from God. And in all fairness, they understand they don't have a relationship with God at all. They're just religious. So this morning, Father, I pray for them. Please have mercy upon them. And please draw them by your spirit into a right relationship to yourself. And help them to be not deceived by the devil and all the tricks that he can pull. And he has a bundle of them. Help them this morning to come face to face with the need, the reality of really having a relationship with God, with you, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Speak to every heart. Saved and lost alike, Father. And then bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour. Those who ought to come for baptism. Those who ought to come for church membership. Those who ought to come for prayer. Whatever the need is, help us to address them this morning under your direction and your leadership. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We just